0: would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading uh, His Word this morning. My Father, we thank You for this Word of truth. We thank You for the high calling that it is to hear it, And ask that, Holy Spirit, you might work within our hearts uh, to enable us to receive it and to um, take such truth and consider its application for our lives in the week ahead. And pray that the Lord Jesus uh, would be made clear as we read and study your word this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. <clears throat> These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. When all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live." So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now I think in some senses that goes without saying because it's a book of the Bible. And we could say that about any book of the Bible for it is divinely inspired. But of all of the books in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus in its remarkable structure most closely resembles the gospel narratives of the New Testament. Because in both the gospels of the New Testament and the book of Exodus you have history historical narrative, and authoritative instruction. In the book of Exodus, you have Moses, the covenant mediator, leading the people from slavery to freedom. And this covenant mediator is the one who receives the word of the Lord and delivers that word to the people. In the New Testament Gospels, you have a new covenant mediator, a greater than Moses, leading his people in a new exodus from the captivity of sin, into freedom in Christ Jesus. And this new, greater than Moses, delivers the word of God in all that he says, for he is God himself in flesh. And so we really do have the gospel in the book of Exodus. The gospel according to Moses. Now the book of Exodus can really be divided into two halves. The first half is all about God's mighty act of redemption in delivering his people through that covenant mediator, Moses, bringing them from slavery in Egypt and directing them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where they are established as a new nation. This is all in the first half of the book of Exodus. Now, the latter half of the book, the book that doesn't get quite as much attention, is all about how God's people should worship him. It's the giving of the law. It's instructions on how they should build the tabernacle. How the furniture should be not only constructed, but placed within the tabernacle. The garments that the priests are to wear as they lead the people in worship of the Lord. And so we could say that the structure of the book of Exodus is essentially rescue and response. Now that God's people are called out of slavery into freedom... How should that be reflected in their life? Very simply, release from slavery is not freedom to live for the self, but it is freedom to worship the Lord. This is true freedom. This is real freedom. Over and again, Moses' words to Pharaoh, again, as this covenant mediator comes to him and says, "...let my people go, that they may worship the Lord." Not simply let them go, but let them go that they may worship. And So the Exodus event is not about political rebellion. It's not motivated by some sort of socioeconomic unrest of an oppressed people group. But it's about worship. A people set apart by God's covenant to worship the Lord. Someone has put it like this. The covenant is the mainspring. ...from which the action of the book of Exodus flows. It's the covenant that acts as this underlying grid, this underlying structure... ...holding together all of the narrative and all of the instruction that's given in the book. Without an understanding of covenant, the book will make no sense. Without without an understanding of covenant, there is truly no application of it into our own lives. As we think about what this means for us... If Christ is that new and greater covenant mediator, if he is that greater than Moses, then you are liberated from your sin and captivity not to live for yourselves. You are not liberated to live the way that you want to live. Now, yes, you are liberated to true freedom. But true freedom is most fully expressed in worshiping the Lord, in serving him. In giving your life in grateful obedience to His law. Conforming your life to His law. Now in this particular passage this morning that we are considering, we're going to look at three things. Three ways in which the Lord prepares for this mighty act of deliverance that is to come in the chapters that follow. Notice first of all in the first paragraph, the first seven verses, that God is working behind the scenes. We could call this our God setting the stage, preparing for this mighty act of deliverance that is to come. I can recall in high school being part of the stage production crew at my high school. It was a small school and everyone had to be involved in some way. And I figured that was much better than actually taking a part and having to memorize words and stand in front of everybody. And it was weeks in preparation to work to get everything together just so. All of this work behind the scenes, if you will. Because if that work wasn't done, there really would be nothing to look at. And so while we have no, notice, no explicit mention of God's name in this opening paragraph. In fact, we have no explicit mention of God at all until we get to verse 17 and then verse 20. Nonetheless, we have clear evidence of God's active involvement... And his care for his covenant people. Notice the ways in which God is working behind the scenes in these opening verses. First, we could say that God is sovereign over location, sovereign over the very place in which the people of God find themselves. They are right where God wants them to be. The first five verses remind us of how the children of Israel found themselves to be here in the land of Egypt, lest they ever forget. It was the clear command and direction of their covenant God who brought them to Egypt in that time of severe famine. It was the Lord God who paved the way by sending Joseph to Egypt and elevating him to this position of influence and authority, living within the courts of the Pharaoh. That which his brothers meant for evil, you recall, selling him into slavery, was something that God meant for good. The saving of many lives during this time of drought. Now, generations earlier in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord tells Abraham, (coughs) Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And later in Genesis chapter 46... When Jacob learns that his son Joseph is in fact alive in the land of Egypt, the Lord speaks clearly to Jacob and tells him, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for it is there that I will make unto you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And so these opening verses of Exodus, you see, are drawing a connection between that which occurred previously in the book of Genesis and the unfolding Of those promises here in the book of Exodus. There is again covenant continuity between these two books. The children of Israel are exactly where they are are supposed to be. Awaiting the Lord's leading. It is God himself bringing them to this particular time. At this particular place. And do you see... That this is a theologically foundational commitment that we need in our own lives. This is not just a statement of fact that they found themselves here, you see. But it is a theologically loaded historical reality. That he is the sovereign one who rules over human history. Now why would the children of Israel need to keep that in mind? Why would they need these opening verses to remind them and bring them comfort Well, clearly because of the oppression that's going to come in the very next section under the hand of this new pharaoh. Now imagine for a moment that you are among that first generation of Israelites relocating there to the land of Egypt. You are one of those 70 to arrive and settle in the land of Goshen. Now there may not be widespread embrace of you because you're a foreign people... But at the very least, there would be some sort of an acknowledgement that, well, yes, it was your brother, it was your uncle Joseph who saved us from dying. And so for a time, there would have been a level of acceptance and prosperity for the Israelites there in the land of Egypt. And it's easy to trust in the Lord when circumstances are right. It's easy to trust in the Lord when everybody likes you, or at least everybody tolerates you. But when things begin to turn and the darkness creeps in and the trials of life intensify and the hardships increase, you need to be reminded of this theological truth, that he is the Lord of history. Well, how else do we see God working behind the scenes in this opening paragraph Well, just as he is sovereign over location and timing, we could say that the Lord is sovereign to fulfill his promises to them here, even in this foreign land. Now, verse 6 is a very somber verse. Joseph dies. All his brothers and that entire generation that came into the land of Egypt, they are all now dead. The patriarchs are gone. And for all of their imperfections, at least we knew them by name. And now there is a leadership void here, you see. What is going to happen to us? God knew them by name, but does he know us by name? But then we get to verse 7, in which there is clear evidence of the Lord's blessing upon them. There were 70 of them when they first arrived in Egypt, but now they fill the land. You remember the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. And here we have the children of Israel fulfilling that mandate. And we have clearly God in their midst, blessing them, enabling them to fulfill this command. Again, it's the realization of what we read in Genesis chapter 46. I will make you into a great nation. And those words are coming to fulfillment. And in case you missed the significance of the Lord's blessing upon them, there are five statements in this one verse verse 7 that speak almost in this poetic fashion of their increase in number look there again they were fruitful they increased greatly they multiplied they grew exceedingly strong the land was filled with them and so you have this repetitive nature driving home the point not only that they are becoming an exceedingly great people numerically but it is the lord working in their midst It is the Lord fulfilling his promises to them, promises that were made long ago, promises that go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. It's there that the Lord tells Abraham that he will be the father of a multitude, that he will be exceedingly fruitful and that the Lord will be Abraham's covenant God. And the Lord is being true to his word. And so, here in these opening verses, all seems to be going well. The people are prosperous. They are fruitful in this foreign land. And while there may not be explicit word from the Lord telling them what he is going to do next, nonetheless, there is abundant evidence that God's presence is with them as he blesses them. But then, secondly, we come to this next portion of the narrative that begins in verse 8. We could call this our God involved in hardship, our God involved in trial and suffering, involved in difficulty. We quickly encounter a very precarious situation. Verse 8, a new king who did not know Joseph comes to power. Perhaps this is an allusion to a new Egyptian dynasty that is on the rise. Now, of course, this new king knew of the existence of the people of Israel He knew that they had settled in the land of Goshen. But what he did not care about was the role that Joseph played in offering leadership during that time of severe famine. What he did not care about was honoring the children of Israel in spite of the great work that God had done through the life of Joseph. And because he has no regard for Joseph, we read in verse 9 that the new Pharaoh engages in persecution. And we'll look at the motive as uh, the text unpacks that for us a bit in just a moment. But it's important to recognize that there is an underlying spiritual reality that is being displayed here. His disinterest in Joseph is ultimately disinterest in the way in which God intervened in world history to save an entire generation from starvation. His indifference toward Joseph turns to hatred... Hatred toward the children of Israel because he ultimately has indifference and hatred toward God. See, when sin came into the world and God pronounced the curse upon mankind in Genesis chapter 3, he made it clear that there was going to be enmity, hatred, and division between the offspring of the woman and the spiritual seed of the serpent. And so there are those who belong to the covenant community... ...who are recipients of His divine grace. And there are those who are hostile to God's people. And behind that hostility toward God's people is a hatred toward God... ...and a hell-bent desire to overthrow His purposes. The one who opposes God's people opposes God Himself. The one who has hatred toward them has hatred toward God. And so there is very much a spiritual battle going on here the Lord working his redemptive purposes to redeem mankind from misery. The Lord working to save his people on the one hand versus the evil one who will do all that he can to fight against the Lord. And in Egypt, the Pharaoh, of course, was seen as a divine ruler, one who was there in the place of the gods. And so we really have here a clash of worldviews at the most fundamental level. And it will be made clear in the chapters ahead that anyone or anything who opposes God simply brings foolishness and futility into his own life. And so the king has this hatred toward the people of God. But at the same time, he is a shrewd politician, and he must convince his fellow Egyptians that these Israelites are a danger to national security. You see, they are living in the eastern delta region of Egypt. Any invading force that might come from the north would come right through that region. And so in the mind of the Pharaoh, it is plausible that these foreign people who are not true Egyptians would align themselves with an invading people. And that plus an invading army would absolutely overrun us. And so verse 10 is essentially, look at the way they multiply. And if that continues... They will be a threat to our way of life. And not only that, they might escape from the land. It's not enough that they might come and overrun us, you see. We might lose out on the labor production that they bring. If it was only concern for them overrunning them, we'll then dismiss them, send them away. But no, we must capitalize in some way upon this workforce that is there at our disposal. And so his response is to subject them to hard labor, Building these cities that will act as defenses and storehouses where they can put supplies for their troops if an invasion does come. Clearly he hopes that by putting them to such harsh forced labor, he will keep them from increasing in number. Maybe it's because the sheer toil of laboring under the hot Egyptian sun will kill many of those who go out to work. Maybe at the end of the day, they will simply have no desire to procreate, and that will put an end to their multiplying. Again, we need to take advantage of their labor while seeking to decrease their size and influence. But then in verse 12, we read that the opposite effect happens. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And you see, it's under this burden of oppression that the Lord works his most mighty act of deliverance. Now that is true, not just here, but this is a true fact that we find in redemptive history. Under the weight of our sin and guilt, our Redeemer emerges victorious. As he bears the wrath of God for us, we are delivered from condemnation. In Isaiah chapter 53, one of those passages from Isaiah that speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord to come, we read of this Deliverer, this Messiah figure who will come. And in verse 4 of that chapter, he is one who will carry our sorrows. In verse 11, he will bear our iniquity. It's the same word that is used here in Exodus chapter 1 to refer to the burden and the oppression Pressed down upon the people of God. It is that weight, that burden you see of our sin. That is ultimately transferred to the Messiah to come. And so it's under this oppression that God continues to work his purposes. Clearly showing himself to be one who is in their midst. Now in the Pharaoh we see that there is this fine line between hatred and fear. What started as fear for Pharaoh... As their numbers increase, now turns to hatred because he cannot control them. And listen again to these oppressive and dark words from verses 13 and 14. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, this is a sermon for another time, but this, you see, is an accurate picture of what life was like for them under the Egyptian oppression. And this is a far cry from how they choose to remember things later when they're in the desert, isn't it? You recall the times of grumbling and complaining, longing to return to Egypt as though it was this place of bliss and prosperity. Just a couple of months, in fact, after their release from slavery in Egypt, they cry out, it was there in Egypt that we had pots of meat and all the bread we could eat. They fail to remember the bitter slavery and oppression that they were under. It's interesting how selective we can be in our memories, isn't it? And so it would be wise for God's people to remember what they have been saved from as they face trials in this earthly life. Then in verse 15, Pharaoh steps it up a notch. In his hatred, the king asserts his royal decree upon these two Hebrew midwives, telling them that as, as soon as they assist in the delivery of the baby, if they see a male infant, they are to kill the child. Perhaps make it look as though the child is stillborn, but allow the females to live. Are they going to carry out the orders of the king of the land, or are they going to trust in the covenant promises of God? The text reads very simply in verse 17 that they feared God over man and let the boys live. Now the king, of course, the king, of course, here is furious. And the midwives respond with this plausible explanation. You've seen their ability to increase despite all of this bitter labor because they are not like the Egyptian women. And so the people continue to multiply, and they continue to grow in strength. Everything that this powerful world leader does to try to stop them has the opposite effect of what he intends. And then in verse 22, he hopes to wipe out the people of Israel completely. Forget trying to conspire with the midwives and telling them to kill the male infants. Now it's a command that goes out to all the people of the land... Any male child is to be thrown into the Nile. Now, why would Pharaoh do this? Well, his hope here is that they would lose their identity, that they would be forced to intermarry with people of the land. If they are absorbed into the general population, then they're no longer a threat. And even more than that, the promises of God will fail. Now, the the Nile River was viewed as a god to the Egyptians. So it is not simply a location of certain death for these infants thrown into the river, but it is a show of force of the Egyptian god over the god of the Hebrews. And there's two ironies here. First is that it's the same river that God rules over to preserve Moses, the one who is his chosen instrument of deliverance. And the second irony comes later in Exodus chapter 15. It is God who takes the Egyptian army and hurls them into the Red Sea, destroying all the elite males of Egypt. And so as this section comes to a close at the end of this chapter, it's a section that starts with great blessing and God's care for his people. But things quickly deteriorate and darkness falls upon them. Now, what about all of those promises that God made to Abraham? Promises that seemed to be fulfilled. Have those promises changed? Has God failed in some way? Is He just a regional deity that's located somewhere else and now we're in this land in which a new God has more power over Him? Are the people being punished for something that they have done, bringing God's wrath upon themselves? It's in the midst of such darkness, even in our own lives, that we too can ask such questions. Why? If you're jotting notes down this morning, I'd like you to catch this important concept. As God's people, we need a covenant, Lord-centered worldview of history. A covenant, Lord-centered worldview of history. And by that I mean this, a covenant view of Again, the covenant something that underlies not only what we read here in the book of Exodus, but the covenant underlies all of human history. We are His redeemed people if we are in Christ Jesus, and there is nothing that can change that status. And a Lord-centered view that He remains Lord over all, and all things as they unfold in history are done for His glory And it is His glory that is at the center of all things. This is a worldview that we need to nurture. This is a view that we need to grow. Something that we as God's people need to seek after. And the book of Exodus in this narrative form is helping us to develop this type of God-centered view of history. It's all about what He is doing in the life of His covenant people in order to exalt and glorify His name. And when we become perplexed with our circumstances, we can be reminded not only of narratives like this, but of passages like Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, in which the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And that is a truth that ought to bring us great comfort in all circumstances of life. Just because we don't have the reasons that we want to satisfy our questioning doesn't mean that there is no reason. While we have a longing to know why things happen the way that they do, God is under no obligation to answer those questions. And in fact, He has told us the reason why in an ultimate sense, for His glory. This does not mean that God is silent. It is through the details of this narrative that we see God faithfully working. Working in the details. Never absent. Never resorting to plan B or C or anything else. When trials come, the hope that is ours is that in an ultimate sense, we will prevail for we are his people. John 16, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Isaiah 54, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 46, 10, The Lord says, My counsel shall stand And I shall accomplish all of my purposes. In Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These are the confident promises that we can take upon our own lips. These are the confident promises that we can sink deep down into our hearts because of our faithful deliverer, the Lord Jesus Now no doubt the children of Israel at the end of chapter 1 would have been very discouraged. Which is why the next paragraph of chapter 2 is so important for us to consider. That's our third point this morning. Is that God is bringing help from unexpected locations. Preparation for deliverance from the most unlikely of sources. First there are the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah. Now, typically, the status of a midwife was women who did not have children of their own, who could not have children of their own, and they were relegated to this lowly position. In the eyes of society, they were insignificant, and yet they were used by God for God's purposes. And now, thousands of years, we are reading about them, and we know them by name. And so that question that may have arisen in the mind of the Hebrew children That first generation that God knew by name has died off. Does he know us by name? Well, here is the answer. Yes, beloved child of God. He knows you by name. And I find this to be absolutely remarkable. Because historians cannot speak with certainty as to which Pharaoh this is. We have no idea as to the identity of the most powerful man in the land. And yet we have preserved for us... In the records of history, the names of these two lowly servants, Shipra and Puah, they are the important ones in history because they are the ones who fear God. Their names are written in the book of life for eternity because they looked to the promises of God. And the Lord's response to their trust in Him is to bless them, to buy His grace, to give them a family of their own. There's another unlikely source. In chapter 2, verse 1, a man and a woman from the house of Levi. And we don't even learn the names of Moses' parents until we get to chapter 6. Here it is just a man and a woman from the house of Levi. And it's the woman, the mother of Moses, who looks upon him and sees that he is a fine child. Now what does it mean to say that Moses was a fine or a beautiful child? Isn't it the case that every mother looks upon her newborn infant as a fine and beautiful child? We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, "...by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict." And so they don't merely hide Moses because he was a beautiful baby... But he was beautiful because they understood him to be a gift from the Lord. And their motive was the same as the midwives. They feared God more than they feared the edict of this king. And we read the same word in Acts chapter 7 verse 20. Moses was born. This is in Stephen's speech. Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Not just beautiful in the sight of his parents, but in the sight of God. And so you see it's a setting apart by God's grace for this special purpose that makes Moses, even as an infant, something special. And so she hides him for three months until she can do so no longer. So she fashions a basket, more literally an ark. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 for the ark that Noah built, a vessel of deliverance, a vessel of protection. Now, the basket was not sent downstream. You might have that image in your mind from your Sunday school lessons, that the basket was wandering down as the crocodiles were around it or something of that notion. (laughs) But instead, we read here that the basket was secured along the banks of the river in the reeds in order to keep it hidden, perhaps so that Moses' mother could draw him out on occasion to nurse him. Now, the Nile was the Egyptian god, and it was the edict of the king that the Nile was to be the place of execution for such infants. No Egyptian guard would have been looking here for a Hebrew child. Surely the Hebrew people would have kept their children as far away from the river as they possibly could. And here's another irony of the text. Moses' mother actually did commit her child to the mouth of the Nile, the river god, the god of the Egyptians. And yet the Nile was unable to consume even this helpless infant child because the false god of the Egyptians is already being defeated. Now she doesn't know what the outcome will be, but she simply trusts in God one step at a time. No idea what will happen, but there is faith in God. And what an important thing indeed for us to learn. Another unlikely source of deliverance is Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of the very one who makes this edict is the one who has compassion and love for the child. She recognizes him immediately as a Hebrew child, perhaps because he bears the covenant sign of circumcision. And then, in an almost humorous turn of events, she doesn't know that Moses is, or Moses's birth mother is the one that she's actually employing but paying his own mother to care and nurse for her child. And then when the child grows, he comes to be adopted as a member of the household of Pharaoh. Now scholars are um, not unified as to how old uh, Moses was and they're thinking here of when he went to go be part of the household of Pharaoh. Some say it would have been when he was weaned, some at age five or so. Others say that it would have been around ages nine or ten, when a prince of the Egyptian court would have begun his official training. But either way, in his childhood, he is now legally adopted and he goes to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The very decree ordering the death of male infants leads to this chain of events in which Moses becomes a part of Pharaoh's court. The very decree that was meant to kill him Leads to his training among the Egyptians, a training that the Lord is pleased to use later in his life. Well, what are some applications that we can draw from a narrative like this, besides the few that we've touched on already? Well, first, we learn about God's covenant faithfulness. We learn that he is true to his promises. In fact, he can do nothing else but be true to his promises. See, in this interim period, we're not sure how the children of Israel drew upon the promises of God while they were in slavery. We're not even sure if they drew upon God's covenant promises. The question, I think, for us is, what about you? Are you going to draw upon the covenant promises of God? Are you going to continue to look to the faithful, unchanging covenant Lord Who has loved you with such an undying love that he has sent his Son to atone for your sins? Are you going to look in faith and repentance to the Savior and to his faithfulness to finish the work that he has begun in you? The most powerful man in the world cannot thwart the purposes of God. The evil one seeks to destroy the Christian's hope, but he ultimately will not succeed. He may wish to rob us of joy, but as we look to our faithful God, that joy is something that can be nurtured in our life to the point that it becomes something stable and something lasting. Second application, we learn here a great deal about the hidden providence of God. And when we talk about God's providence, we mean, of course, His absolute Rule and control over all of human history. Every even seemingly insignificant and minute event the Lord is in control over. Now we spend a great deal of time in the church talking about God's absolute control over history. That everything works according to his purposes. Now we hear this so frequently we might wonder to ourselves, why do we need to hear it again? Well, because it's a theme that is pervasive throughout Scripture. And here's where we can use our deductive reasoning. If we're told something again and again and again, it's because we have a tendency to forget again and again and again. And so where in your life do you need to hear again of God's good, loving, and purposeful providence? Where in your life are you failing to live with a fundamental conviction that God is sovereign over all things? Now we will affirm His providence. We will say that it is a good and loving providence when we see the benefits of it. When things are going the way that we want, we have no problem delighting in God's providence. When a test that we were worried about is postponed until the next week, wasn't God's providence good? When we're finally recognized at work for all of the hard work that we have put in, isn't God good in His providence? When He heals, when He brings resolution to a conflict, isn't He good? Certainly He is. But what about when things don't work out the way that we think they should? When the unexpected expense creeps up in life? When the doctor calls and says there was something suspicious on the biopsy? When you get a flat tire on the way to an important appointment, when the teacher gives you a pop quiz and now your perfect GPA is ruined, is he any less involved? Is he any less loving and purposeful? This is the framework, you see, that we need to construct our life around, a a framework that is here holding everything together together. It may not be easy where you find yourself right now, but you serve a God who rules over all. And you see, this is not some pious platitude that we just feed one another. But this is something that we need to sink deep down into the very core of who we are. Because those hardships and trials will come. There is no one that is immune to such things. And in the midst of those things, will you marvel at his goodness? Will you delight in his care for you? Even when it feels as though through the oppression things are pressing down upon you. A third application, I'll turn with me if you will to Luke chapter 5. A third application, we could say, is learning about the nature of grace. Learning about the nature of grace. In Luke chapter 5, I'll just begin in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. we see here in Jesus' own words, and we see it in narrative, narrative form in Exodus, a prerequisite to forgiveness of sins is seeing your need for grace. It's seeing your helpless and hopeless condition. And so when we see throughout Old Testament narratives such as this, God using the lowly and the weak and the marginalized He is preparing His people to see the marvelous way that He is going to bring about His redemptive purposes. It's the proud. It's the arrogant. It's the self-righteous who see no need for grace and forgiveness. It's only those who see themselves as needy sinners who find life in Jesus Christ. And may we, by His grace, always see ourselves as such. And a final application here is that we learn about the coming of the Lord Jesus. See, all of this points ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. Moses acts as a deliverer, but only temporarily, only provisionally. Christ's deliverance and working redemption is much greater, delivering a people in order to create a worshiping community. It's connected to that passage we read earlier in our service from Matthew chapter 2. See, both of those narratives from a purely human perspective, things seem to be just hanging on by a thread. Midwives, a couple of unknown Levites, a basket in the river, anything could go wrong. In Matthew, a helpless infant and another tyrant who is filled with hatred toward God. The power of the world in both instances seems impressive, seems overwhelming. Why such hatred? Well, God's salvation appears as a threat. It's a threat to our own perceived autonomy and self-reliance. It's a threat to our pride. It's a threat to the seed of the serpent. It's a threat to the serpent himself. It's a humanly impossible situation... But the Lord God redeems, and he is coming again. And if God is yours, and if you are his, he will save you. Isaiah chapter 11, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So you see, the book of Exodus helps us to learn who the Lord is in his greatness. The book helps us to learn who we are as his redeemed, beloved people. People known by name. People known very intimately. It helps us to learn how to live as those who are called out, trusting, hoping, delighting in the one who is working faithfully. May his name be forever praised.